0: I'm Sue Alvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 48, and today I want to talk about being different. Are unschoolers different? Are we making our children different, and is this an advantage or a disadvantage? I've got my 14 year old daughter, Sophie. Joining me later in the podcast to discuss this topic, but first I'd like to tell you a little bit about something that happened in the week. My husband Andy's a school teacher, and the other evening when he was opening his emails, he got a bit of a surprise. He was told that he is being given a Saviour Award. It's an award to do with the paramedics. He's going to go to a ceremony next week and we're going to go with him, so that he can receive, together with a couple of other teachers at his school, an award for saving the life of a student's mother. If you listen to my previous podcast, you might remember this story. It happened a few months ago. The parents, as usual, dropped their kids off at school, and most of them left. But one woman she actually had a heart attack in the playground. And my husband Andy was walking by at the time and he noticed her slumped on the ground. And he called for help. Another teacher came along. And a third teacher rang the paramedics, the ambulance service. And between the three of them, they kept the woman alive until the ambulance arrived. They applied CPR. The woman went on to make a full recovery and of course, she was very grateful for the teacher's help and their family was as well. Now, my husband and the teachers were thanked in a special meeting with the family when the mother had recovered and it was in the local newspapers and they made a big thing about it. My husband and got a little bit embarrassed about the whole thing. He said anybody would have done it. He was just there at the right time and who wouldn't try to help save the life of somebody who needed it? Of course, we were all very proud of him, regardless of his embarrassment. As we said, he had the skills to help, and he kept his head about him. He was calm. Not everybody would have been in his position. Not everybody could have helped keep that woman alive until the ambulance arrived. I imagine some people would have panicked. Some people just would not have known how to do CPR, though all teachers have to take the uh, first aid course. So all of them theoretically should have been able to keep this woman alive. Yeah, and he was just in the right place at the right time. And, of course, he didn't expect any rewards or any thanks. And this award that he's been given next week has come out of the blue, and, again, he's a bit embarrassed about the whole thing. He was nominated for this award, and he's going to receive it, and we're all going to be there to see him get it. And, of course, we're all going to be really proud, regardless of what he says. I don't know if I could have done what he's done. I don't have the skills. I was speaking in my last podcast when I was talking about this, about how I feel I should go and learn CPR, improve my first aid skills. But I haven't actually done anything about it. It's rather worrying. I think that really we all should make the time to do these things because we don't know when we could be in the position where we could make all the difference to somebody. I was also talking about how my children all have very good first aid skills because they either belong or they have belonged to St. John Ambulance for many years. All my children, except Gemma Rose, at the time of my last podcast, knew how to do CPR. So if anything happened to me or to anybody else, they would know exactly what to do. And I think they'd keep their heads about them too. They'd be able to go out there and do it. Our parents have to give children permission to learn the skills of CPR because some children wouldn't be able to cope, I don't think, in a real-life situation where those skills might be needed. So by giving them the skills, they would feel obliged to use them, and that might be too much pressure for them. But all my children wanted to learn CPR, and we talked about it, and so we gave our permission for them to learn learn how to do it. Anyway... At the time of the last podcast, I wish I could remember what number it was, but I'll put it in the program notes, I was telling you how my older children had been with St. John Ambulance for a number of years, and gradually, one by one, they decided that it was time to move on to other things. They were busy with other areas of their lives, and they all resigned eventually. Now... Gemma never got the opportunity to be part of St. John Ambulance. You have to be eight years old, to become a junior. And although she'd been to many St. John Ambulance meetings as a visitor because she was always going along with her older brothers and sisters, the year she turned eight, the last of her siblings resigned from St. John Ambulance and we didn't take her by herself. I guess we decided that we'd been there, done that, Our children had finished with St. John Ambulance. Andy and I had done our fair share of driving to and from town for all the meetings and all the events. And it was time for us to retire too. We didn't want to do it anymore. And then after Andy had had the opportunity to help somebody with CPR, we rethought the whole situation. We decided that Rose ought to have the opportunity to go to St. John Ambulance as well and learn the same skills that her older siblings had learnt. And Sophie decided that she would return as well with Gemma Rose. She hadn't had as many years with St. John Ambulance as the older ones. So for the past couple of terms, Andy and I have been driving in and out of town on a Friday evening again with the girls so that they can be part of St. John Ambulance. So how they got on? Well, it took Gemma Rose a few weeks to feel comfortable with St. John Ambulance and the other children. I don't think she was very sure about it at first. I had to encourage her to keep on going for the first few weeks. She could have dropped out very easily. I just sort of nudged her along and Sophie encouraged her to keep going. The children who go are very different from our children. It was a new experience for her. But she's got over that now. She is really thriving at the meetings. She's enjoying the first aid immensely. And so I wonder sometimes if it's worth nudging our children, encouraging them to give something a fair go. Not if it's distressing them, of course, but if they're willing to keep on going, not to give in at the first sign of trouble and to agree with them that it might be best if they drop out. Of course, I wouldn't have kept pushing her if she really didn't want to go, but just that she wasn't quite sure that this was the thing for her. It's a different story now. She loves going on a Friday evening. I think one of the things that made it very difficult for Gemma Rose to go was the fact that she felt she didn't belong with the other kids. They're all school kids, very, very different from her. They talk about things that she doesn't know about. They talk about what happens on the school bus and about particular school teachers and about maths tests and have you done this assignment And it's things that our children can't join in with. They don't feel that they really belong. They feel different. So we're coming up to the topic that I really want to talk about today. Feeling different. Being different. Is it a disadvantage for our children to be different? Many, many years ago, when I had just one little baby and I was reading all the parenting books, that I could get my hands on because, of course, I wanted to do a fantastic job as a mother and I used to read everything that I could find. I read a few books about how to make our children into geniuses. And these books told me that children learn the most in the early years. They made it sound like once a child got to five years old, their chance was gone. That if parents hadn't done the preliminary work with them, they weren't capable of evolving into very, very clever people. So on one hand, I felt perhaps it was my responsibility to encourage my children in their growth and development in any way I could so that their potential could be fulfilled. Because, of course, I liked the idea in some ways of having clever children. Of course, I found out since then that being clever is not everything. But half of me was also a little bit apprehensive about encouraging my children along a pathway which would make them different from the general population. Wouldn't it be easier for our children just to be there in the middle somewhere, to not make waves, to be part of the crowd, to belong? Aren't people who are more clever than everybody else, don't they stand out? Don't they find it hard to fit into society? Well, these were my thoughts. And so I was a little bit hesitant about wanting children who were different. I think that sounds terrible now because I think that all children should be encouraged to be who they are, regardless of whether they're different or not. They shouldn't all be encouraged to be the same. It's their uniqueness which makes them very special. Yes, I have changed my mind about a lot of things. Since those early days, sometimes I wonder what on earth I was thinking about when I look back on my early years of parenting and think of all the mistakes I had and all the thoughts that went through my head, all the things I was worried about. I guess I also wanted to be accepted as a mother. I wanted to just be one of the crowd as well. I wanted to belong. But my children don't really belong in the world, I guess. They do belong, but I will get on to that in a minute because I'm going to be talking to Sophie. I recorded this segment a little earlier with Sophie when she had a few minutes. So I hope you enjoy listening to her opinions. I asked my 14-year-old daughter, Sophie, to join me, and I have a few questions to ask her about being different. Okay, Sophie? Yeah? You're willing to tell us a little bit about how you feel about being
1: different? Okay. So are you different? Very. How are you different? Well, I'm an unschooler, and I think very differently from other people.
0: Give me some examples.
1: Well, I approach life in a very different way to other people, especially learning. I find that other people approach learning very pessimistically while I'm quite very optimistic about it.
0: So they don't enjoy learning?
1: Not as much, I reckon, as unschoolers do. So quite
0: often I hear other children and even parents talking about how glad they are when the holidays arrive. Yeah, yes. that type of thing. And I remember in a previous podcast how you were telling me that the question you hate being asked the most is, what is your least favorite subject?
1: Yeah. I hate that question. Would you like to tell us why? I feel that if you have to have a least favorite subject, it's a very pessimistic way of thinking about learning.
0: Everything is, is worth learning. Everything is potentially interesting. Yes, because we don't we all have our favorite things, don't yeah, we yeah? We all
1: have our favorite things and the things we're not quite interested in.
0: But you don't look at at learning as a whole as something that has to be done or something that's boring or
1: no, no.
0: Are you different to other homeschoolers?
1: Yes, quite very different. Homeschoolers think differently from school people, but they still think more like school people compared to unschoolers, if that makes any sense. They still approach life and learning in the same sort of way.
0: So life and learning is two different things for homeschoolers.
1: Yes, whereas for unschoolers like us, it's the same thing.
0: So for many homeschoolers, they get their work out of the way. And then get on to the real stuff of life.
1: Yeah, and for us, the real stuff of life is learning. The thing learning and life is interchangeable for us.
0: Now, we used to go to a homeschool group, didn't we?
1: Yes, that didn't last long.
0: No, we were too different, I think. Even though they were very friendly people, weren't they?
1: They were very friendly, but we just
0: were too different. I found it very difficult when the mothers all got together and they were discussing homeschooling problems at such as how am I going to make my son learn this or that type of thing. Yeah. And all the other mothers would have their suggestions, make him do this before you you allow him to do that or something of yeah. that nature. And all I wanted to say was let him unschool. <laughs> <laughs> which wasn't really the answer that they were looking for. So I was on the fringes of those conversations. I didn't feel I had much to offer, nothing much that would be of interest to them. Also, they used to say things to me like, aren't you glad the holidays are in two weeks' time? Oh, that question came up a lot. And my answer really was, is the holidays coming up in two <laughs> weeks' time? Uh, I didn't realize. We do enjoy holidays because Dad's home, but it we don't look towards the holidays as an escape from our term time learning, do we? No. So there wasn't much to say there.
1: And with the children there was a lot of school like questions such as what's your favourite subject, what's your least favourite subject and all those questions you'd expect in a school rather than in you know, homeschooling.
0: Or what what grade are you in?
1: Yes, that one came up so much. It wasn't what how old are you? It's what grade are you in?
0: And you say, well, I don't really know.
1: No, exactly. I'm like, well, I don't do grades.
0: And then they think you're a bit weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're definitely different to the school kids and you've met a number of school kids at your St. John ambulance meetings, haven't yes. you? Yes. What do they think about you?
1: Um, I can't say what they think about us, but I think they think we're a little bit strange. Weird. <laughs> yes. Do you get on very well with them? We get on all right. We're just not the same as them. It's a little bit harder to connect with with them because we're very different and we don't understand each other in the same way.
0: What about conversations? Can you join in with their conversations? I
1: can join in with a conversation right up until it gets to the point of a school topic and then I'm a bit lost.
0: So they talk about things to do with school a lot?
1: Yeah. Uh, A lot of things like tests and that come up and they keep asking me, have you done this test? Have you done that test? do you have to do HSE? And I'm just going, no, I don't have to. It's not essential. Are they envious of you? Uh, quite a few have said that they wish that they could be in our boots.
0: But do you think they would really want to if it came down to it, if their parents said, we're taking you out of school and you're going to become a homeschooler?
1: Some of them might, but I don't think they all would have. I think some of them are slightly too social for that.
0: They belong to the group, don't they? Yeah. And they would be on that's the That's where they fit in right and you don't really belong
1: no have you found any kindred spirit
0: friends there no do you think you will
1: not really (laughs) no (laughs) have you
0: had any conversations with them about things other than school but hobbies and interests that type of thing once once
1: i asked them what their hobby was and the answer was that they didn't have any hobbies their hobby was school
0: so even if you can't connect on the level of school you also can't connect on the level of interest because they don't seem to have any or no, they're not interested in talking they're about waiting
1: them. until they're out of school to have their interests are there any
0: advantages of being different
1: i think there are i think that it's very easy if you're different to be comfortable with being yourself. I think that being different, you're a very confident person. And I find that being an unschooler, we've become very self-motivated and we don't need other people's praise to keep us going.
0: You don't feel that the need for other people to approve of you?
1: No, that's not necessary for us anymore.
0: So I often see... Kids trying to fit in with the, the cool group. Have you seen that? Yes. They all try to say the right things, dress the right, right way, behave in a way that will make them acceptable to the group. So they're popular, They that type of thing. Yeah. You don't feel the pressure to do that?
1: No, I don't feel any pressure about it anymore.
0: So that's freeing?
1: Yeah, it's very freeing to know that you don't have to fit in. It doesn't worry me that I don't act like everyone else.
0: You don't want to be part of
1: the crowd. No, definitely not.
0: Now the school kids know that you're different, right? Yes, they think they that- can
1: see that.
0: <laughs> what in your appearance? Do you think that you can tell just by looking at you that you're different?
1: Mm, probably, we do look a bit different. In what way? Well, I know for a certain fact that I don't care a thing about whether I look fashionable or anything. In fact, at St. John's, I end up wearing khaki pants every week, the same pair every single week, because it's the only pair of trousers I own.
0: Is that because I won't buy you any?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, because I hate trousers. (laughs) But I don't really care about what people think of how I look anymore.
0: So, but you do look all right.
1: Yeah, I look fine, but I've got my own sort of fashion now. All oh,
0: right, so you don't go with the with the fashions. You are just yes. happy to look how you like to look.
1: Yes. So we look different because we have our own style.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah. But do you think that people soon find out you're different?
1: Uh, as soon as I open my mouth, I'm different. <laughs> so I think that the
0: adults at St. John's have noticed you're different.
1: Yes, they've noticed that.
0: Um, In what way are you different from everybody else?
1: Well, we approach the first aid side of St. John's slightly different to a good portion. We're interested in actually learning and we don't have much tolerance for mucking around. We get a bit annoyed when all the other kids start playing up and everything because we're actually interested in learning and hearing what the adults have to say about first aid.
0: So that's uh, unusual.
1: Yes, it seems that most of the kids who go to St. John's come for the social side of it.
0: So you're the only ones really that have a passion for what you're learning.
1: There's one or two others who like first aid, but most of the people seem to be more interested in talking and joking and standing around instead of actually doing actual physical first aid
0: I guess there's a time and a place for joking and talking around but it's not actually it's when not somebody's work. when somebody's giving you a talk on first aid that's not the right place no definitely not so you're not against having fun
1: we're not against having fun but it's when someone's talking in a lesson and the other people aren't paying a single bit of attention and they're talking so loud that the people who do want to hear can't
0: hear now you told me something else interesting about being different it's about other people, what you notice about them.
1: Well, I find that being different, I start looking for differences in other people. It makes me aware of of what makes other people special and what makes them different from the crowd, even if they are actually part of the crowd. You get more aware of who they actually are and you start looking for the small details.
0: Now, some children wouldn't want to be different. Do you agree?
1: Oh, I agree.
0: You see all those children who are trying to become part of the group and they'll do anything to change themselves to become part of the group, will yeah. And you won't do that. No. You won't change who you are to fit in. So that being different, not everybody wants to be different because it can't be easy. Oh, no,
1: it's definitely we not all, easy at
0: first. We all want to belong somewhere, don't we?
1: Yes. We all want somebody to fit in and feel comfortable around.
0: So how come you feel confident enough to be different?
1: Well, I feel confident enough because... I've always been different, and I've got people around me who are different. I've got a whole family who's different, and it makes it a lot easier because I fit in with the family. So you do have to belong somewhere. Yes, you have to belong in some spot, and that gives you the confidence to be different in other places.
0: So a good, strong family that is important?
1: Yes, it's very important to being weird. So you enjoy being part of the family?
0: Definitely. Because a lot of the, uh, kids would say they'd rather be with their friends than their family. Yes. But it's the other way around with you, hey?
1: Definitely. I don't actually feel as comfortable away from home as I do at home.
0: But when you go out, you can talk to people?
1: Oh, I can talk to people.
0: So, I'm not shy. So you can get on with other people, like at, at groups, people who are different from you. Yes. But you have that belonging place as well.
1: Yes. Yep. So it's like a place to go to. And you were telling me
0: earlier that although you haven't found really any kindred spirits to be friends with, you do have some best friends.
1: Oh, I've got definitely got best friends. It's my family. Your sisters. <laughs> yes. And is that enough? It's definitely enough. I find that having my family is better than any amount of friends who aren't, you know, kindred to me. But some people would
0: say, well, you're going to have to learn to go out there beyond your family and make friends. You can do that?
1: I can do that. I can talk to people and I'm open to hearing about other people.
0: But maybe the point is that you haven't actually met somebody that's different as well. But yeah. maybe there are other different people out there in the oh, world. I hope
1: there's other people who don't really care about all the other stuff because otherwise you can have a pretty lonely life when <laughs> you
0: you. But so what makes me feel confident though is that once I had a conversation with Callum, he's your older brother, isn't he? Yes. He's 23. And I was talking to him about being different. And he said, said, exactly like you, I don't mind being different. But he's managed to go out there, find jobs. Get friends. Find someone to marry. He's getting on all right in the world, isn't yes, he? Yes, he's
1: definitely getting on right.
0: He's got confidence, hasn't he? He does. So, yep. Yeah. That's, not, that's not like... It's
1: not just my own view. <laughs> no. You'll be all right. I will be fine. I
0: also think that being different and having that confidence will keep you safe. That it will allow you to stand up for what you feel is right when other people are pressuring you to do something which you're not happy with. Yes.
1: I think that it gives you a very a level of confidence and you don't care so much about other people's views so that you won't bend under pressure.
0: That's a very good point, isn't it? Yeah. I've enjoyed talking to you today, Sophie, about being different. (laughs) I rather like being different. I think in our family, it's something that we all enjoy being different about, don't we? We
1: do. We make a lot of jokes about it.
0: We actually make something
1: positive out of being different. We do.
0: Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. That's all right. week I was talking about strewing or rather my failure to find things of interest for my daughter Gemma Rose. I was finding things for her that were of interest to me but not necessarily to her and I was getting very frustrated about the whole thing. Why doesn't she like this book or this movie this activity because I think that that is very interesting. I wasn't tuned in very well to her present interests. I was under the opinion that she wasn't interested in much at all. She wasn't doing a great deal. Last week I was telling you about how I started looking at her more closely. And she is doing a lot. She is interested in many things. And so this week I have been looking out for things that will interest her and not me particularly. Although I do find a lot of these things that I'm putting before her interesting as well. So what have I done? Well, this week I went around our house and had a look on our shelves and I found some other DVD versions of Charles Dickens' novels. Now, the ones we've been watching are the more popular ones, the latest BBC ones, the big productions, the ones that we really love. But we haven't actually seen the older versions. We've got this idea that they won't be quite so good, not so lavish, but they're probably worth watching. So I have put them somewhere where we can see them, and we're going to work our way through them. We started off with Great Expectations the other night. It's the one that stars Helen Bonham Carter as Miss Havisham. She's a wonderful actress, Helen Bonham Carter. We like her very much, very versatile. And knowing that she was in this production actually made us want to watch it. So we part way through that. But I have a whole stack of other DVDs waiting for us to look at. Now, the other night, Gemma Rose decided she wanted to watch Phantom of the Opera yet again. She likes watching things over and over again. And I don't think there's a problem with this. Obviously, when children watch something over and over again, or read a book again and again, adults might get frustrated by it or bored by it. But children are obviously still getting something out of their contact with the movie or with the book. They're still learning something, still processing something, or even still enjoying something. They haven't got to the board stage like adults. So we watched A Phantom of the Opera together the other night while the rest of the family went to choir practice. Later on, I found the novel, The Phantom of the Opera, the one that the production is based upon, on our bookshelf. Now, I should have written down the author's name, and I don't really want to leave my recording and go and have a look because it might take me a while, but I'll put that in the program notes. Now, I don't know if the movie or the stage version of Phantom of the Opera is true to the novel, but we might just find out by reading the novel. I also don't know if it's suitable for Gemma Rose's age group, but I can ask Imogen because she's read the book and she'll be able to give me some guidance on that. Which brings me to another point recommendations, things that might or might not be suitable for children. It can be a risky business recommending things to other people. What if other people have a look at something, read a book or watch a DVD or a YouTube video and find something that they don't agree with? They think it's not suitable for children, certainly not suitable for their children, but I recommended it. That can feel like a big responsibility sometimes. People might come back to me and say, how could you have recommended that? Do you allow your children to watch things like that? They might think badly of me. Well, to be honest, I should put a disclaimer on my blog because I haven't watched or read everything that I recommend. And I have mentioned this a few times, but maybe people don't realize this. The resources that I usually list are I list as a starting point, something that parents could investigate. They may or they may not fulfill the family's needs, but they're a starting point. You can start there and decide for yourself whether you want to use it or not. But I guess there are times when I do recommend things that I have read and watched, and still you might say, I wouldn't put that in front of my child. And you might have a bad opinion of me. Well, I hope you won't, because I hope we don't judge each other. This also reminds me of years ago, when I was new at homeschooling, when we were all new at homeschooling, all my friends were all finding our way, and sometimes I would let my children watch certain movies or read certain books, and sometimes my children would actually lend the books or the movies to their friends, and sometimes these movies or books would be returned with the message so-and-so's mother or father didn't think that they were suitable. And then I would feel really bad about the whole thing. And then I would start questioning what was in that book? What was in that movie? Perhaps I was wrong. And I started out myself. Obviously, we had different criteria we were basing suitability upon. I began to feel a bit inadequate. I wasn't looking after my children properly. I didn't know what was good and what was bad. In the end, I stopped letting my children share what we were doing with their friends. I would say, other people's parents might not approve of this, so let's keep this to ourselves. And I stopped talking about what I was doing with my own children, just in case somebody judged me, or criticized me. The funny thing is, over the years... A lot of people changed their minds about what was good and what was bad. I think everybody was just trying to do their best, and they were earing on the side of caution maybe. And with time, we all relaxed a lot. We weren't so scared to offer our children certain things. I think with good family support and discussion, we can actually offer our children more than we realize. Everything can be a learning experience. Of course, there are certain things which are obvious we wouldn't want to give our children or certainly we wouldn't want to give it to them before a certain age. Some things are just definitely evil, definitely bad, and we we wouldn't want to offer them to anybody, child or adult. I guess the whole thing is being confident of our own opinions and not judging others and having a good relationship with our children, knowing what they do need and what they don't because of course when things are rejected by another family they're probably quite right they know their children better my children might cope quite well with something that somebody else's children wouldn't and this leads me on to something that we've been doing at home this week I hesitated whether to share this or not because I don't want people to come back to me and say oh look Steve, how could you have recommended this so I'm going to recommend it as an adult resource. Adults I think will enjoy this and there's no problem whatsoever and if you watch it maybe your children will enjoy it as well if you think it's suitable. It's a YouTube video. Its presenter is Alastair Sook who is a British art critic and the video is called What Makes Art Valuable. It's just a BBC documentary just an hour long show, which I found in the sidebar on YouTube when I was actually watching something else. It caught my eye and I thought, oh, look, this looks interesting. So I sat down and watched it with the girls and most of it is perfectly fine. Alistair Sook is talking about the world's top 10 paintings valued on money. It was only when we got to the Picasso's, which are the most valuable paintings in the world. I think there's three of them he mentioned that the commentary on them got a little bit difficult as far as children go because Picasso's love life and his subjects maybe aren't suitable for children. I know HM Rose got up and had to go and see to the dog when uh, Alistair Sook was talking about one of them. I don't know whether the dog needed seeing to or whether she just got uncomfortable. Only lasted a couple of minutes anyway. But the rest of the show was very valuable. We had some good discussions about it. Now, most art shows or art resources focus on the artist, his life, a little bit of biography, which also might take us into uh, difficult areas, because most artists have things in their lives which are not child-friendly anyway. But I guess most child resources for art focus on the paintings themselves, and they are a very carefully selected group of paintings. But this show isn't really about the paintings themselves, though they talk about each of the paintings. The questions the documentary address are things like, is it the quality of a painting which makes it valuable? Or is it more to do with who owned the painting or who wants it the most? Or who painted it? Does a name give a painting value? If a painting is unsigned and no one's sure who painted it, is that painting worth less then if they establish that the painting is, for example, a Rubens, suddenly the value of that painting shoots up, even though the painting itself remains exactly the same. Another question, why do people buy paintings? Is it a status symbol? Is it investment? Do they buy them purely out of love? And can paintings be destroyed by the owner once they've bought the painting? Are they at liberty to do whatever they like with them? Or should paintings, which are part of our heritage, be public property? Or if they're not public property, should the private collector share them with the public? All these sorts of questions that we discussed afterwards, it was um, very interesting. I made a note of all the paintings and I found images on the internet of them all, even the Picasso's, and I copied and pasted them all into an Evernote note so that we have them to refer to you. And then last night I found a second Alistair Sook BBC documentary, which I watched by myself. It's called The World's Most Expensive Stolen Paintings. That was also very interesting. I think that was pretty kid-friendly. And I noticed in a sidebar there was another one about the paintings of the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. And I thought that sounded interesting too. So I might investigate those. TV documentaries are a good way of learning. They're very enjoyable. Adults like to watch them just as a matter of course, as a matter of entertainment. It's another way that our children can learn about things. And then discussions come from watching them if we have watched them together. And since we've watched that one program the other day, we wanted to know more about one of the artists and we've been doing a little bit of other research, one thing leads to another. And one more resource that I want to speak about, and that is Wilkie Collins. I was thinking about authors who were similar to Charles Dickens. Now, I'm not sure that Wilkie Collins's style is very much like Charles Dickens, but he's pretty much a contemporary of Charles Dickens. They both lived in the 1800s. As far as I remember, Wilkie Collins is more of a detective novelist. I'm not sure, but I think that he might have the title of being the first detective novelist. I'll have to go and research that one. I do know that his novels are very enjoyable. My children have read a number of them. We have a collection of them. I have read The Woman in White, and yes, it was good. But that's another source of books that Gemma Rose might enjoy. And surprise, surprise, Jim Rose has been clipping Little Dorrit things into her Evernote notebook when I'm not around. I was really rather pleased by that. She is still looking into Little Dorrit. <music> I think my podcasts are getting a little bit longer. I think I'm talking too much, so I apologize for that. I did hope to keep them around the 30-minute mark. So I'll put all of the notes on my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. I'll find a few links and blog posts associated with today's topic. Of course, I would like to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes or follow it through Podbean or just follow my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. I'll be back, I hope, next week with another episode. I never know what I'm going to talk about ahead of time. As the week goes on, I usually jot down a few notes, ideas that come to mind, conversations that I've had with my children. And usually as the week goes by, ideas for the podcast start to take place so that by the end of the week, I feel ready to record another episode. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to this week's episode. And until next week, trust, respect, and love unconditionally.